0: Welcome to Receding Horizons, a podcast for exploring topics in astronomy and space science. Since antiquity, humans have gazed at the night sky, attempting to decipher its mysteries and find our place within it. As astronomer Edwin Hubble once remarked, the history of astronomy is a history of receding horizons. Our podcast will attempt to answer some of the biggest questions from the oldest of sciences. The mission of this podcast is to explore topics of astronomy and space exploration and share them with the community of Brownsville, Texas. Our valley is entering into the next phase of human space exploration and participating in the era of multi-messenger astronomy. We are providing a forum of discussion among people of all ages and expertise to bring awareness about our role in this next exciting era. These are Receding Horizons. The exploration of other worlds has opened our eyes in the study of volcanoes, earthquakes, and weather. It may one day have profound implications for biology because all life on Earth is built on a common biochemical master plan. The discovery of a single extraterrestrial organism, even something as humble as a bacterium, would revolutionize our understanding of living things. That's chapter 14, exploring other worlds and protecting this one, from Carl Sagan's 1994 Pale Blue Dot, A Vision of the Human Future in Space. This is Receding Horizons, episode one, where we plan to talk about biology, the science of life, both on Earth and in the realm of the cosmos. We'll also be talking about dinosaurs. So, without further ado, our guest today is Andrew Maurer. Andrew has a Bachelor of Science in Biology from the University of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, received in 2016. His research interests span comparative herpetological phylogenetics and paleobiological studies, as well as genomic mapping and comprehensive studies in the Aves, Lysamphibia, and Squamata. He is currently a data entry worker at Microgen DX in Lubbock, Texas. Previously, he's been a shift lead and veterinarian assistant at Banfield Pet Hospital in North Wales, Pennsylvania, and was an intern at the Harleysville Veterinary Clinic he also speaks german and i've had the honor of calling him a friend for the last 13 years andrew welcome to the podcast
1: thank you richard thank you for having me
0: yeah it's been we've been talking about having this episode for a while because i think the three of us i, I every time i talk about space usually the first thing that comes to mind is life on other worlds i think a lot of people link the study of space to are we alone and what better to study life here and then apply it to what we know, you know, to see what's out there. So like, it, it, I know you're interested in, in space as well, Andrew, but your primary passion is biology. What got you into it? Tell tell us about your background. What, what made you interested in biology? What aspects of biology and, and all of that, just go, sure. go ahead and tell us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I would say my passion for biology began, if, if you can call it passion, Back when I was a kid, when I first discovered, when I first realized what a dinosaur was, and I just it just ran away from there. Uh, usually, usually kids, you know, kind of grow out of that sometimes, and I was that that one kid that didn't grow out of this dinosaur phase. So, and I just kept piling on different concepts, um, whether it be geological, just the idea of geological time, um, extant species. Now, as you alluded to, with uh, my research prospects being in those areas that I would want to jump into and just carried on from there
2: until I'm here. So. That's awesome. So uh, t- speaking of some of those research prospects, there were some uh, terms that maybe some listeners and maybe some people on the podcast right now uh, <laughs> don't fully understand. <laughs> do you want to go a little bit into, into uh, specifically what you do and, and, uh, I mean, it's, so you got interested starting with, with dinosaurs and, and then it sounds like that expanded into some very specific fields. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, no, absolutely. So dinosaurs are always,
1: you know, that kind of a driving factor for that, that they that interest into what was life like. And that has led me to learning or wanting to learn more accurately about what makes up life itself. Which is genetics. You're looking at DNA, you're looking at patterns of DNA, you're looking at different segments of different chromosomes, that's, and how they interact. That's kind of what genomic mapping is, um, just in a general term. And then uh, the terms Liz amphibia, aves and squamates, essentially amphibians, birds, snakes, and lizards, but I would also love to do crocodiles and turtles. Um, so, it's really just an overall study of those particular organisms, uh, looking at their genomic past um, to whatever extent we can, and that's where the phylogenetics come in. So, looking at how, their, how they relate to each other genetically is one of my, one of my
3: biggest uh, questions and one of my biggest interests. And I was going to say that pretty much because it. well, paleobiology is... is
1: biology, by looking at the different, how they might have lived. So in a very, in, a, in an analogous sense, when uh, we talk about astrobiology, we're looking at what type of life could have or could be. Uh, we look at in paleobiology, what, what could have been. So looking at how different organisms interacted with one another and, you know, trying to, trying to construct these models of, what earth looked like 66 million years ago or 120 million years ago or 300 million years ago that's that's what i'm looking at that's what i'm looking at at this point
0: i really like the parallel between how you find out the truth in paleontology and how you find out the truth in astronomy and astrobiology because you're only dealing with the past and you're only dealing with partial evidence right so all of these fantastic pictures you might see of dinosaurs or environments 200 million years ago that's reconstructed from fragments of knowledge right i mean in oh yeah you're
1: playing yeah no exactly you're really playing a detective in these situations picking up these clues and trying to find out how these clues are linked and not really having you have some overlying principles that kind of guide you along that way but i i use the term model because it. it it could change uh, with one piece of with one piece of evidence if it knocks the model out and it's like, oh, well, I guess uh, something crazy. Well, actually not so crazy. Uh, an example of a model of, of a, like an organism changing um, is Spinosaur. Uh, you might know it as that, that dinosaur from Jurassic Park 3 that like totally monched on T-Rex and I don't approve of that nonsense. But um, very unlike... What that depiction was—it's more like maybe a waiter or a swimmer in uh, Saharan Africa, like 120 million years ago. So you—you—and that's just based on more data. You have more fossils that come in, and your, the model changes up, and you revise and go from there. And it's still <laughs> quite as bizarre as it was before, but yeah, it's—it's—it's all—it's all a big puzzle.
2: That's how I look yeah. at it. So w- at some point, we definitely have to go deeper into Jurassic Park, right? But but for now, I just wanted to mention that I, I really, really liked that comparison you made with the detective because, you know, when people think about detectives, you think about, um, so, you know, some agent in New York or something solving a murder with, with evidence built up over like a week or something and, and doing that. But when you're talking about being a detective, you're talking about uh, everything that we're finding out about the, the genomes and fossils and and traces of of all of these creatures over millions and billions of years so that's that's a pretty high level detective <laughs> that yep yep and it
1: requires um requires some an acute uh, sharp eye and you know you wit. so and that's what, what i'm hopefully that's what i'm training to do at this point is to get to that level so that i can be with those, those top paleontologists and those top geneticists and, and figuring out what what this uh how how this is all connected from an organ from like an organism standpoint
2: okay and and so you start with dinosaurs is the goal to figure out from dinosaurs and to now how everything is connected i know we have a a basic idea of of the you know the series of evolution from then to now but so to your role is to really tie the pieces even closer together and, and find more specifically how we came about
1: that's right that's right and obviously finding genomes of like tyrannosaurus so like going back to jurassic park being like oh we extracted dna from a mosquito in amber like yeah that's great but that, that dna probably degenerated millions of years ago so it's not really feasible to do that unfortunately but you can still have different technologies be introduced to find out what certain aspects of the dinosaur could have been like. So an example that came up not too long ago, there was a, it was a late Jurassic uh, theropod, um, so like a meeting dinosaur. And it was, it was feathered. I, 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 the name escapes me for some reason. But we were able to use, I think, and don't quote me on this, but it was some sort of, it was a type of technology that could look at the remnant of the melanosome, which is the pigment in your skin that gives you color, at a dinosaur feather. And we were able to determine what the color of that feather was. And we thought this was impossible like a decade ago. And well, maybe even more like a decade and a half ago. But yeah, to just to uh, have new technologies applied to old ideas just is mind-blowing. And we can, uh, I think, the, uh, now that I think about it, I think the dinosaur is acheornis, I think. But obviously, you know, can't can't confirm that right now. But
0: and I'm what from, what uh what like periods did this exist in um what uh, or era?
1: I, I believe,
0: be- Oh, so era. So oh no no. Meso- I, what's Jurassic and Triassic? That's correct. Me. What is that? What are those? Those are eras. So those are eras. oh no, no periods.
1: Tur- Triassic, Jurassic, Triassic, Cretaceous period. Your era is the Mesozoic.
0: Ah, okay. So, so what yeah, we're period- talking
1: late. Late Jurassic, I believe, it could be Early
0: Cretaceous as well. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Now I have to. This begs the most important. I I think the most important question, which is, um, what's your favorite dinosaur and why? And go into that. Like, ooh, well, <laughs> you knew it was coming, so <laughs> I knew it was
1: coming, and you
0: switched it. I thought this was going to be the bathroom, but
1: damn, dang, you got, yeah, front loaded it on me. So. <laughs> There obviously there's a lot of iconic dinosaurs, right? You have Tyrannosaurus, you have Stegosaurus, you have Brontosaurus, and for all those out there who's like, well, technically it's a Patosaur. I think being called a Thunder Lizard is more, much more cool than being a Patosaur. So to say Brontosaurus is acceptable, uh, and this is this is confirmed by the paleontology
3: community as well.
1: So, uh, but I would have to say
3: my favorite dinosaur of all time would probably have to be allosaurus and that is because it is
1: your basic model for what top tier predator at that time looked like it's just the body build um you know the proportion of like the front limbs to the like the hind limbs the jaw structure uh the fact that it has like a little crest so you can imagine like like some ornamentation on it. Uh, the fact that it was found in mass with other uh, herbivores, other allosaur might indicate that it could have been pack hunting. Uh, so so it's been thrown around and might have been, it might have acted very similar to like how a lion does today. And to just be a lion of the Jurassic period is just totally badass to me. So <laughs> I would, awesome. I would say Alan. And he wasn't the biggest one at the time, but just the fact that he's just that iconic at this point.
0: I was gonna ask relative size to like ones that are kind of more well known, like the T Rex, like uh
1: Oh Tyrannosaur definitely had it on mass. Um but even at that time, you had another carnivore in West in the western United States at that point, I believe it was Torverosaurus that existed at at the same time as Allosaur, and would have been competing for like diplodocus and brontosaurus which is mind blowing to see you know things organisms four or five times bigger than elephants existing one on land and two just interacting with one another it's just
2: mind blowing to me so I, I have a question. So it, it makes sense to me that, you know, when you get the, the genome information and the, the DNA information, you can put together pieces about the physical characteristics, like the color and the the size, but how do you, how do you find out information about the behavior and when, what they acted like, and if they were pack animals, how, how do you reach those conclusions without seeing one? That's a great question. And with, with having, well, if, if there was, if we were able
1: to have genomic information from a dinosaur, that would be fantastic. Unfortunately, the closest we got are the birds outside. Um, you have some very, some dinosaur-looking birds, like your shoehorn bill and your cassowary. But unfortunately, to say, oh, we can genomically map out like what Tarveris or allosaur was would be very, almost impossible with the methodology that we have and what we know about in general, just the degradation of DNA. But finding out about behaviors and whatnot is how their skeletons, how their fossils are, uh, are settled into the ground. And you can take away um, maybe things like bite marks as well on the fossils, wear and tear on them if there was obvious signs of like breakage in the bone. So there, there is a lot of detective work and there's a lot of not speculation, but there is a lot of educated guesses that go into it as well. So you could say, well, it could be this, but it it could also be that. And you have a ton of debate going on in the paleontology community about, you know, whether one, like, is this species an actual species or was it just a younger version of a dinosaur that we already
3: have, so on and so forth. So to to answer, I guess, long story short, it's just how, how you find them in the ground,
2: Wow. Yeah, I can imagine there's a lot of <laughs> debate over that with, with with things like physics, at least, you know, most of it, you can um, create an experiment and, and test it out. But with things like that, if you're looking at bite marks, I'd imagine that there's a, so much debate and so many different opposing views. And wow.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. No, especially when you have like geologic events happen as well and how that can change the bone and how it can warp it as well. So you really do have to take those things into account. So, you know, in a sense, to be a paleontologist is a very integrative field where you have to know some biology. You have to know what basic biology. You have to know uh, ecology to a certain degree. You need to know geology. There has to be a little bit of physics involved as well. So there's there's a lot there's a lot going on with that with that particular field.
0: Yeah, I always thought that there's no two closer science relatives than paleontology and astronomy because it's the same exact thing. It's comprehensive. It's uh, you need a little bit of everything. Even if you want to do biology and chemistry, you gotta you gotta know those things to to do them on other planets and um, and indeed. you're only interacting with the past. You can't even replicate those experiments here. So um, exactly more fitting for a first episode too uh, to to talk about these two big big fields. Um, yeah, dude. I, 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 I was do. going to say that for,
2: for the people that don't really, like, I guess they don't make that connection. When I first heard that, I was amazed at the, the uh, paleontology, how, you know, you're using fossils, you can only look at the past. And, and with astronomy, I mean, um, a lot of people don't think about how that light that's traveling to you is from millions and billions of light years away. You're not looking at anything in the sky in real time. And so, uh, yeah, that, that connection is just it's really yeah. cool. That also blew my mind when I first heard that. That's just, it's just amazing.
3: It's amazing.
1: Man,
2: imagine if there need, sorry. That's okay, you're good. I was gonna say, there need. I wish there was dinosaur constellations. Why didn't that happen? That's
0: ah, exactly you know. What I was gonna say. You no, know,
2: I, guess, I guess Greek gods and
1: Roman gods beat us to it, you know, that's just, <laughs> it's just how it crumbled, you know. I mean, maybe like certain things. I mean, the idea of a dragon, being the conglomeration of you know different different past predators of early humans and then finding their fossils in the ground it's like oh dragons were real and
0: it's like sense they were real but they weren't
1: dragons per se yeah
0: it'd be like draco i guess but um, yeah i was also going to say i think paleontology has a, a layer of complexity that astronomy doesn't which is you have to deal with behavioral traits astronomy is just dealing with like I mean, essentially basic elements, as the joke goes, astronomers make bad chemists because everything in the universe is hydrogen, helium, or metal. Um, So everything is interpreted basically through simple fundamental ideas. You're not trying to reconstruct the behavior of predator-prey relationships and symbiosis and stuff like that, right? I mean, um, so there's a whole, yeah, that's, um, I I was going to ask one other question kind of related to this, which is about degradation of DNA. Do do you know or do we know how far back we have found essentially surviving DNA of any of any species of any living organism?
1: Oh, off the top of my head, I would I would guess that petrified mammoth and the infant mammoth uh or I think there was an infant mammoth that was petrified in frost up in Siberia. Mm-hmm. And that's about a million years, if that. So and then it's missing a lot of and I from what I recall it, it's missing a large portion of its DNA. So it, it's unfortunately not a very stable um, organic compound, uh, but it but it certainly does uh, have its wealth of information.
0: Yeah, I, I guess that's the trade-off. That's your entropy trade-off. It's a very low entropy structure, so it's not going to last as long. Um, that that makes yep. a lot of sense. Yep, yep. Do we? You-
2: do you anticipate there being anything else in the future that's discovered? Or do you think that's, that's it? Do you think we're done and we're just going to live on working with, with what we have now?
3: I would think with better technologies, you're going to be able to look at fossil
1: structures more and, with more and more precision. So that could lead to some breakthrough discoveries. Um, in terms of actually finding organic compounds, I mean, there have been some exquisitely preserved mummifications. So you have skin imprints and what that dinosaur last ate, still preserved. Uh, in, in, in and in a sense, not, not like it's like still moving, but it's 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 imprinted in the sense, and you you saw what it did. So that leads credence to behavior, diet, things of that sort. But in terms of know, taking it and comparing it to the gen- like the, the genomes of um extant birds or amphibians is unfortunately at least at least for all I know out of the question but obviously there is a wealth of more uh there's a lot more people out there that are looking at the same ideas and you know they're 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 digging through that information and literally I suppose.
0: Yes, I, this this also jogs my memory of a particular study that was done that the most likely, at least the study predicted that the most likely macroscopic life form that you would find on other planets, uh, aside from like your vegetative plant like ones would be essentially like crocodiles or some sort of low energy oh, reptile like that would be the most common because mammals burn hot we're hot blooded we don't live as long relative to like some you know like turtles for instance so the, oh, yeah. the most likely thing you would find would be these low energy macroscopic entities out there
1: yes yeah, that would make complete sense just from the standpoint of being able to use your environment as your heating source as opposed to having to take in so much energy just just to keep you know, just to maintain the balance within your system to maintain homeostasis. So, yeah, no, that is that is a very good point. And yeah, if there were an off-world croc analog, that would just be fantastic. Also terrifying because it's a crocodile, but fantastic nonetheless.
2: Just in case, before we switch off the topic for dinosaurs, uh I see Yoshi behind you. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> what- He's a dinosaur. Yeah. What he dinosaur. He's
1: he's he's my man. One and then two. Um, favorite
2: uh, Mario Kart character always goes to him first. So. just a me too. Actually, he's always. I, I never really had a reason. Just for some reason, I've always been attracted it's to. Like yeah, him. I always <laughs> choose him. Yeah, it's he's because he's Yoshi.
1: Because <laughs> he's Yoshi. <laughs> and the fact that he could just take in and just like up oh, there's an egg.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's he's. We were playing Mario the other night and uh, doing a lot of that. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I guess maybe maybe the universe is filled with lots of Yoshi's. Maybe there's that.
1: That would be terrifying, but also awesome,
2: but also very awesome. I get murdered. I wanted to be murdered. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to go.
0: Death by Yoshi, I, okay. I, I... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I actually I had a question. So this is also kind of a big question and much more serious than what's your favorite dinosaur. Although that's the most important question. Oh, yeah, um, especially when you're when you're studying biology at university, um, mm-hmm. and you get a comprehensive view of the different areas of biology. In, in your experience and what you've read and everything you know, what is the current best definition of life as we know it? And my ultimate reason for asking this, I know this is a huge question, so for the listeners out there, I I understand this is like the biggest question you could possibly ask, basically. Um, My point is, you actually asked a good question as a great conversation point on this very podcast, which is, why isn't fire considered alive? And I thought that maybe you have some insight that, like, based on the definition of life as we know it now.
1: Absolutely. And that definition, uh, like
0: life itself
1: is changing it has different modifications it has different iterations it is something that is debated a lot amongst the biological community and you'll, you'll have different definitions turn around but usually it's a laundry list of different features about that entity that you know if they have it then it's more it's considered more lifelike i suppose and if it doesn't then it's something that is less lifelike. So the thing that comes to mind for me would be viruses. And are viruses alive? Well, they are not really cell, they're not made of cells per se, but you have single-cell organisms. So you'll point kind of a check mark for that, but kind of, but not really. Um, Can it sustain itself? Does it take in energy, does it take in material and excrete waste? That's also a big part of what makes life life. You have to bring in energy in order to have some sort of you know metabolic function. That's another thing if it if the if the entity doesn't have a metabolic function, then we don't consider
3: it too life like um, but you know then you can go into arguments of well, can it sustain can it
1: be sustained on its own? but you know parasites are another thing or another group class of organisms that are just well they can't really survive on their own they need a host. so is that life is that are they considered light are they considered a life form Um, but one of the best definitions that i've seen so far um, was actually from a forbes article and it was an entity that can adapt to its environment and so taking fire as an example we, it does, it does in a sense take in stuff and excrete stuff. So that take in is oxygen and carbon, and that excretion is water and uh, carbon, yes, carbon dioxide and heat. So you could say, okay, well, there's a point for that. It does spread. It can kind of adjust to its environment a little. If like the wind changes, it goes with the wind. If there's not a carbon source to burn, it doesn't burn it. But one of the things that actually kind of blew my mind is the being able to be subjected to evolutionary pressures, and having inf- and having genetic information, or information in general. So that doesn't exclude, possibly in the future, you know, if AIs, what are AIs, life-like. I mean, they have information; they can do a lot of these things. But that's, that's a whole other podcast in itself, that's a whole discussion. Yeah. So I would say the reason why fire wouldn't be considered a living is it doesn't have genetic information. It can't really respond in the way that we respond to, like, let's say, heat. So if I put my hand on the stove and it's hot, I'm going to pull my hand away. Or there's a decision if I, like, if I keep it on um you know something will happen and i will be able to receive that so to be able to take in stimuli as well and then react to it um is a huge part of some of something being alive and if you take cells into account and be if it well if it doesn't have cells then maybe that's not living as well so you can you can kind of poke at fire from a lot of different angles and see that it's not living, and it's also kind of intrinsic in a very weird way. It's very qualitative. It, you can you can look at a rock and say, yes, no, clearly it's not alive like I'm alive, or like how a bird is alive, or how a plant's alive. There's growth, there's complexity, there's taking in information and in the energy, there's releasing energy and um, and waste, and having having all
3: these it's just just being more complex than a, just a simple reaction of, well, I mean, with fire combustion.
0: Right. Yeah. that That's an interesting perspective. I never considered what you said about taking in information and almost like having an updating. Like it, it there's, even if it's implicit, even if it's instinctive, like, oh, there's danger, run. Uh, Oh, that hurts. Or, oh, there's food over there. Then they're not consciously thinking that, up to the continuum so far that we understand is us, which is we can make those decisions consciously. Um, It seems to be life involves this updating of information and then that's passed down along that. And that's where genetics comes in. Right. I mean, genetics is what encodes that.
1: Right. Exactly. You can, you can, you can think of the genome, your genome um, programming you to do these things in a sense other other there are other information that come from being you know, for us being in a culture but just like learning in general mm-hmm. a little bit more complex than um the basics of like memetics but um, nonetheless having having like you said like an
3: update having being able to process information and then react or process in, uh, stimuli
2: so I have another follow-up question that, that's also kind of a big question that I think we, we mentioned before. But so um, so if, if the definition of life, it sounds like a lot of what you were saying was that it's reactive, right? You have to, it reacts to something. And so it makes a lot of sense that with um, things like fossils that you're looking for, you know, you, you're not going to harm anything there, right? It's already, it's already dead. You just, you're here to study it, what's on earth. But in terms of um, astrobiology, there's uh, something that's not really taught. I've seen it mentioned, but not too much, but the, the morality of it, if we find life somewhere else on another planet on on an asteroid or something um, you need to test it, right. And you need to test it for its reactivity with different things, but is then there's a, a moral implication. If, that's you know, somewhere else. It's not on Earth. It's not something that's already dead. It's something else that could potentially evolve. And so it, there's a moral implication in, in testing it and messing with it and checking its reactivity. Uh, what do you think about that from a scientific perspective?
1: That is, that is a great question. Just because with, with the sciences, just because it is feasible to do, doesn't necessarily mean that you need to do it. And by that, an example would be if we found complex life, uh, Martian bacteria, even even in like Martian bacteria, or you know, more more extravagant, be like extraterrestrial life, and and see what what should we do? I I am under the belief of, or I'm under the impression that observation is a must observation is one of those things that you collect enough information to see what exactly is going on and whether you believe that i mean i I personally don't believe that if you go into like say on a planet you're automatically interacting with those things so to almost take like a star trek approach uh would be what i would like to do or what i would i would be in favor of is to just observe to learn and to collect and to, you know, have that contract or that, that uh, another reference point to life on earth. And that, and that is the most exciting aspect of and to, for me, astrobiology in general is looking at, well, how, how did life form on these other planets? And, you know, how does that compare to the models that we have here? Because once, once you have another reference point that, that definitely makes or breaks what you know about yourself and about the the reality around you so it's just just another amazing thing to to strive for just just for humanity in general
2: yeah i i love that um connection i mean yeah that we i want to talk more about astrobiology but uh yeah like the the purpose of it right And, and the reason and people are asking you know why what's the point of looking for life um elsewhere and and i mean the the point of all astronomy is to look out and and to learn more about the universe so that we learn more about ourselves. And uh, I mean, I just read in that in Carl Sagan's pale blue dot that we only found out about global warming because of uh, two people studying Venus and what was going on with their climate. And then they looked back and they were like, Oh man, we're in trouble. So yeah, I mean, there's uh, studying life on Mars and how that is now and how it could or has evolved would just uh, help us learn about ourselves yeah yeah no
0: exactly exactly what, what would what would you suggest the plan be if we discover even microbes on mars how would how, how do you see that affecting our colonization plans for instance like you find bacteria there then what 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 should we do should we hold off on colonizing for now at least
3: i i would be under the
1: guidance of trying to take as little of an invasive standpoint as possible
3: so if it, to find complex life or life emerging somewhere is is one
1: fascinating in of itself i mean you, you just want to like take a sample and just and then just start off and like experiment but i, I would be very much under the to wait and see what happens so watch watching and seeing how exactly via observational data of how how these microbes act um how and you know if there is potential for them to get multicellular and then for multicellular building up complexity and, and complexity maybe along the line you know intelligence comes in and sentience comes in
0: and then you have like one of those what I call Star Trek situations where there's emerging consciousness and suddenly you, you show yourself by accident and you've just given them mythology or something like that. Like, yeah. I, uh, it, so there's a moral implication going all the way to, Oh, what if they're humanoids or something? And they're just, they're just becoming conscious that we're at they're They're at the stage. We were a couple million years ago and, um, and suddenly you show a spaceship to them and they think that you're a God or, you know, you, know, you don't even know, right? Like, exactly exactly um <laughs> what about carbon like because you know speaking of like earth being a single data point and i know there's mm-hmm. exceptions to this as well but um there's like the six standard kind of elements for life and uh that seems to work here and i know there's theoretical models of other uh something based life like silicon based life um, mm-hmm. but what is it about carbon that seems to be the leading, like the, the, the reason why is there something particular about carbon, um, of why it's ba- life is based on it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No. So the, so carbon is one of a select few of select few elements that we find common with organic life, uh, carbon being the definition of carbon life if it, or organic life. If it has carbon, it's organic,
3: uh, hydrogen, oxygen uh nitrogen and so there's, there's one more
0: i'm pretty F- sure there's one more wait there's phosphorus and sulfur right phosphorus
1: is pretty important um especially when it comes to metabolic processes okay um, i want to i want to say
0: dang <laughs> i forget which ones yeah. are they are dang <laughs> now what i'll do is don't
1: don't, don't, don't at me all, all the biologists out there don't at me <laughs> I'll, put
0: a, I'll put a picture at this part when we
1: do the indeed <laughs> <laughs> but yes no so carbon carbon in conjunction with especially nitrogen oxygen and hydrogen make up what we know as organic life and what makes carbon the exception or what makes carbon so exceptional is its ability to make complex molecules which is what we are when you break it down essentially are our complex molecules uh, going from peptides so protein build, the monomers which are you know your basic building block to uh, nucleotides which are the basic building blocks of dna um you know to to all these other different structures that make up proteins and whatnot they come from very simple well they come from simple compounds that then builds complexity. And that can only, from what we know, we've only observed carbon being able to do that. And if I had to take a stab at it, I would say because it's so high on the periodic table, there's not as many other valence shells um, with the atom so that you're close to the nucleus. So you're able to make really, really strong bonds with carbon and with carbon, You're able to then build strong, complex molecules. And then, and in conjunction with water, you have your ingredients for building your basic blocks like ribulose, like, uh, aldehyde um, two, two, two molecules that are really important or that we think are really important with the formation of, of complex life in general.
0: So those are, those, those are like tracers for your exoplanet hunters who are trying to look at the atmospheres and see, oh, well, I mean, they haven't even found oxygen yet in, in, in an abundant ratio, um, which is one of the big goals of exoplanet stuff. But um, even detecting like some, comp- some some basic, like, I don't know, maybe amino acids, I'm not even sure if that would be detectable through spectroscopy, but stuff like those those elements, if you see that particular mixture somewhere, there's a, there's a high chance based on what we see here, that, that there's something going on there similarly.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. And like you said, being able to find those elements in an abundant amount uh, within the atmosphere. Yeah, you're, you're at, and if it's at the right spot within the right distance from the sun, it's like bingo, there might, and it's got water on it. Like, yeah,
2: that's no, there might be something there. That's what I was, go- I was actually going to ask. Is that the reason that planets with water are a are particular interest? It is, I guess I want to understand a little bit better that connection that, okay, there's water, then there's definitely more of a chance for life if water is not really. So, yeah, no. Yeah. So, water is one of those compounds
1: that acts as a great solvent in conjunction with carbon. Um, and what that, what that solvent does is help. It can help facilitate different reactions that happen. Um, So, for example, breaking down fats, breaking down proteins, breaking down sugars—all needs water. So, having that available helps build and and take
3: apart complex molecules. It also is great at taking on heat. So that you know, kind of to back up a
1: little bit, one of one of the things that we uh, talk about when we talk about
3: the emergence
1: of life or organic life on earth is the idea of the prebiotic soup. And what that is, is having a sufficient enough heat, having a sufficient amount of carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, and oxygen within water, helping insulate uh, the intense radiation from the sun at that time. And to have these links, these these different compounds come together and start blocking into more and more complex um, structures. So water is one of those things that we, and until we find another reference point, that is what we know is
3: essential for life. And if we can find, if, excuse me, if we find it on another planet, the
1: the odds of having that with obviously the suitable condition could yield more and more complex organic molecules,
3: therefore, possibly the emergence of some sort of cell-based organism.
0: I think that's what makes um, Jupiter's moon Europa particularly exciting, because it's the only place in the solar system other than Earth that has that amount of H2O water, and it's being heated up. The The internal structure is being heated up by Jupiter's tidal forces. And we know from, from Earth of extremophiles, right? Uh, so if if we didn't know about extremophiles, we would be like, oh, well, there's no sunlight. So how could they form? But now that we have that example here, right? That's, that's important. Yep, yep.
1: No, exactly. And having, having extremophiles, so organisms that can live in very, very harsh conditions. So being able to stay suspended in animation and like sub-zero temperatures for hundreds of years or being able to live uh, at the edge of like a, a like a uh am i thinking am i blanking on the term a heat vent or a thermal vent at the bottom of the ocean are or are in a lake of of arsenic is is astounding so like life definitely can have as like little tweets here and there and it is exciting to see that if if you have a sufficient amount of organic molecules and you know the right conditions you could have have at least some microbes swimming around, which is exciting in and of itself.
2: Sure, it's fun. It's funny how how slow the that, not how slow the progress is, but how how like every step uh, that you we go just leads to you know you see how much how many more steps you still have to take. Like we found the water on those moons. And it's like, great, there's so much water. But if you're looking at it in terms of how how life evolved on Earth with the the prebiotic soup at the bottom of the ocean, it's like, great, there's water on the surface. Now we just got to go down to the the very bottom.
1: (laughs) And maybe it's deeper than Earth. Yeah. 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 No, and it's crazy to think that that heating from Europa is just by the gravitational force of Jupiter.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, The innermost moon, Io, is the most, I mean Earth is volcanic from its own cooling and and geological activity but EO is by itself geologically dead so its extreme daily volcanic explosions is entirely due to the fact that Jupiter is basically liquefying its interior from tugging on it so hard. Um, That's yeah, It's it's, it's gravitationally induced volcanism and so like Europa is a little bit Europa is almost like in that it's almost in like a Goldilocks zone of its own, like a gravitational tidal Goldilocks zone where it's getting heated up, but it's not heated up to the extreme level of EO.
2: Yeah. yeah. What, 70 something moons now? 74, 76 was the number? Uh, I,
0: I believe it's 79 for Jupiter and 82 for Saturn. So I, I, I'm going to lose all street cred if I get that wrong. I
1: mean, you and me both. With uh,
0: not getting all my elements
1: for life right, you know. Touche. Yeah, fair pretty enough. I'm pretty <laughs> sure I got I got most of them. You know, phosphorus, sulfur. Eh, you know, toss it in there. It could be something, anyways. Whatever.
0: Yeah. Boy, this, I, is, I have- this is, yeah. So, go ahead, Victor. No, Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say this is a mutually humbling experience for all of us. So. <laughs> no please please notice me uh graduate programs please that is,
1: that is one of the things that uh but also don't you know use this again
2: <laughs> you can put this on put this podcast on your cv <laughs>
1: oh god yeah yeah no definitely it's, uh, you know just 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 kind of as an off topic just kind of going off the of tangent and just having the, the experience just to talk about these things and to be enthusiastic about you know what the little maybe not the little things I mean, the little things of like that big that build into huge overwhelming structures of just existence is just amazing and just mm-hmm. being able to talk to it with people that are you know that i aspire to to be like is is awesome that's just awesome mind-blowing
0: well victor really had this uh this awesome idea of creating a forum literally one of the things we first talked about about stars was being serving as a forum of discussion where people like we all we're trying to do is create opportunities where we can get people who are interested like yourself in these ideas and come together and just talk about them and and share them with other people um and this podcast has been a an idea i've had for a long time and i just i decided this was the best time to do it um and, I and victor's a great co-host with this and like, I, I hope that you're a recurring guest. Uh, that would be awesome. Oh, gee, well, that would
1: that would be an honor in of
3: itself.
0: Well, you know, I'm going to be like, uh, there's going to be a new nature discovery, like, oh, chemical <laughs> elements discovered on Mars. I'm going to be like, oh, we've got to get Andrew on the podcast to explain what that means, because... <laughs>
2: Uh, yeah but the, the exciting nature of it is is so important because you ha- I think it's it's just as important to communicate it and to talk about it and to you were uh, just a little while ago you were you were going off about the the, the basic cell structures and and the different types and, and the struct the foundation of, of DNA and nucleotides and everything and I was just thinking all of that happened because of dinosaurs because you saw dinosaurs and that led into into this this body of knowledge that you know and it's like that that's what you need though that's actually i was going to ask that a little while ago like in throughout learning biology did you did you end up seeing it as separate like did you take it and then biology in its own became such an interesting thing that that fueled you enough to keep going or was there always that tie back to back to that everything i'm learning goes back to the dinosaurs
3: <laughs> it doesn't
2: go
1: back to the dinosaurs and i'm it definitely makes it more relevant. It definitely, it definitely makes, if this makes any sense, it makes like a, a younger version of myself just like bright, like light up with excitement, like oh, so that's why they do this, and like that's that's awesome. But no, just in of itself, realizing the complexity of life and how you know. Okay, it's it's one complex, but also I mean when you talk about DNA, it can be very redundant. And then having just very separate ideas of like fossils in the ground and DNA, which is just like repeating nucleotides in in the center of your cell, and how you can take those two concepts and bridge them together. That in of itself is also very odd. Awesome. And that that is what keeps me going is trying to to figure out how these connect, to, how these all map out, if they do at all. And just that that hunt that 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 uh, you know that that case, and just trying trying to see how the clues line up, and that's just that's just fun.
2: That's cool. You should definitely you know keep finding ways to communicate it because you're you're really good at it. And uh, Richard too. Richard is just great at at explaining astronomical concepts in ways that are very interesting. And I think it's it's so important to help motivate people to you know f- follow those paths i mean who knows maybe somebody will be listening to this podcast and they'll find out for the first time about water and other planets and then in all this context they decide that that's what they want to do and uh, i think that it's i mean it's crucial that we keep building that conversation and getting people interested that's right we gotta spread the meme that's what we gotta do <laughs> You you brought
0: up earlier memetics, and I, I was going to say that anybody who basically frequents the internet is is kind of a natural expert of memetics at this point, right?
1: Sure are. They sure are, man. It's it's kind of nuts how how that idea and the, just the idea of like the term meme. It, it's to have that to have almost a cultural analog to genetic information. So a gene, a meme, and then how meme just like. Took on a whole other life of its own,
2: man. Okay, you're gonna have to explain that from ground zero, because <laughs> all
3: right,
1: ground
2: I, zero. I've never heard so, memetics.
1: So memetics is the study of of means, and what means are, in coined by the coined by Richard Dawkins, is the cultural packets or cultural informational packets that can range from things as simple as how do you you know what's the proper way to walk what is how do we look at you know what colors mean um, and then going all the way to things like religious beliefs like those are all memes. if it's if it's within a culture if it's shared culturally and it has like some sort of cultural foundation it can be a meme. and that is analogous with genes because you only have a few sets. Of, you only have four types of, of nucleotides. And from those sequences of nucleotides, you then can have those, those transcribed into uh, different proteins. Well, I mean, they would be translated into proteins. They would be transcribed into messenger RNA. That's, that's, that's talking about just like...
2: <laughs> DNA Actually. replication. So we're still DNA talking DNA about memes, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Right. We're still talking about memes. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. And so those
1: <laughs> build up into more complex structures. And so the idea having different memes building up and interacting with one another building up to different cultural aspects. So like, you know, the idea of color or the idea of, you know, honesty, things of these sorts build up and form these social structures. And those transmit all around the world culturally. As soon as we speak and talk, we're 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 casting memes to each other. And it's it's
0: it's a tough life to be a meme out there, man. I don't know. I have to say there's a funny prospect of memes because you know how astronomers are searching for signals of life and they're tuning to radio frequencies and we're just broadcasting our stuff all the time out there. Could you imagine if an alien civilization picked up on signals of humans? They're like, oh wow, we found other life. And they get like a meme from 2019 that's extremely surreal or abstract. And that's the only bit of information they have of humanity. They have to figure out all of us based <laughs> on that one like like E or something.
1: Based, based on a <laughs> dank meme, yeah. I mean,
0: <laughs> that could happen, and then that would be a really interesting. Because then, what if we're picking up their detritus? Like we're just picking up, you know, uh, communications. Most of it's trash, and we have we we think like, oh, it's Encyclopedia Galactica, but really, it's just it's just a meme. Could be yeah.
1: Whatever, whatever their analog of like a soap opera is or something, you
0: know. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I'm thinking of uh, Have you guys seen Rick and Morty? oh yeah have i seen have i seen we've watched it together i'm
3: thinking
2: thinking of the episode with the talking heads where like every planet has to get their like their top talent uh like their top musical talent like that but the meme version like every planet sends their best memes and there's some intergalactic court of judges that decides which planet has the best memes and all the other ones get destroyed (laughs)
0: i'm willing to bet we've been the champions for the last few years because they've been they've been pretty solid i have to say um that also reminds me of uh, go ahead andrew i was gonna say i don't
1: know if they've seen some of our minecraft memes but uh they might turn around
0: they might be like oh intelligent life hasn't formed (laughs) yeah you know the uh the, the the one response to i think it was the the voyager records when they were launched there was i believe it was an editorial column or something that 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 basically wrote an opinion on them and uh there was a bunch of sounds recorded on the golden records and different music from different generations and they put rock music and the rock example was johnny B good or i think it was Rollover, beethoven or johnny B good it was chuck berry nonetheless and um the idea was aliens do find it and they send us a response and the only response is send more Chuck Berry. Uh because they like yeah. it so much. I was like, yeah, that's basically the heads <laughs> episode of Rick and Morty, pretty much. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and uh, I guess so. We were. I know we were talking about carbon and memes. Um,
2: the name of the episode. Name carbon of the and episode. Episode one: memes. Carbon and memes.
0: Actually, that's. That's that's the that is the current lead candidate for the name. I'm going to even type that on my on my notes here. So, memes yeah. with Andrew Maurer. Um, more I mean, Chuck Berry, please. More Chuck. <laughs> <Barry>. <laughs> yeah, more Chuck Brown could be a good episode title too. Um, the uh, the uh, speaking of I guess memes and Richard Dawkins reminded me of Replicators, and I know that Replicators are our current idea of kind of where life originated from on earth at least was the replicators were kind of the fundamental structure um but that's an that's still an assumption based on all life right like there could be other things that instead of replicators out there that could also cause adaptation like life right
1: that's, and that's where the debate is and that's where the how exotic can you get that within within staying within a you know physical bound and yeah, we might find that there's a non-replicator or set of organisms that exist, which would be interesting to see just
3: because all we know is replicator-based life forms. So, I I mean, you could even theoretically
1: think of a time within the prebiotic soup that there were replicators and non-replicators. And through evolutionary processes, replicators won out because they were able to have more of them and take in more stuff more you know nutrients or molecules at that time and and be able to build more so what if there was a situation where instead of water it was another type of solvent and they almost did and they and they went a different direction so that that is also one of the reasons why you know astrobiology is one of those things that i have my my ear to the floor for because it, it really shows you what exactly is possible out there and to say you know, maybe we're you know not exceptional maybe we are exceptional and it's just keeping you know it's finding out that
2: answer solving that mystery i i want to read a, a carl sagan quote that i read right right Before this podcast, I was just, I don't know. He's my my pump up. He's my (laughs) pregame. And I I found this quote. uh, We are the product of 4.5 billion years of fortuitous, slow biological evolution. There is no reason to think that the evolutionary process has stopped. Man is a transitional animal. He is not the climax of creation. Amen. We're not special. (laughs) Amen that that is exactly
1: i couldn't agree more that is something that we it's both amazing to think about that we're the product of billions of years of chemical and 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 biological evolution but to also know that we're as evolved as the sparrows that are outside my window as the ants that are crawling around in the ground as You know, the birds, well, I already said birds. Maybe I should pick another. Uh, the amoeba, the amoeba on the surface of my table. Uh, it's, it's amazing. It's, we're, we're, we're part of something that is much grander than I think our imaginations. Well, I mean, our imaginations could take us very close, but
4: we're,
1: we're part of something that is very, very grand and we are just a small part of it. And, but to be able to look out and to admire
3: it is, mind-blowing.
0: I know that the analogy uh, we talk about quite often is it's as if we're at the stage that mud has suddenly went oh wow and that's where we're at right now like it just woke up and saw and saw everything and now we're in coming out of shock and we're just starting to get our bearings kind of like Carl Sagan said we're taking our first step into the cosmic ocean you can imagine like how big the ocean is and you just take one step into it that's where we're
2: at and there's still a whole ocean
0: there's still a whole ocean (laughs) yeah
2: one of my favorite analogies uh it's from a song and they say we are the dust on the stained glass windows trying to comprehend the cathedral
1: exactly exactly
2: yeah that's
1: it's, it's just crazy that we're talking about these these concepts of just trying trying to piece it trying to piece it together and and So to
3: pursue
1: something like that is a very, uh, in my opinion, a very noble
0: cause. Indeed, especially when you're dealing with something something we didn't even get into yet, which is consciousness as well. Because that's a whole layer of complication. You could talk about how rare biology could be in the universe. But then we don't even know if the current state that we're in now, like that we're becoming conscious, whatever you want to call it. It's even hard to describe that is this that this might be an accidental tangent like maybe this is maybe li- this is very atypical like life shouldn't ever go in this direction maybe we could see why but on the other hand it could be com- like we don't know how common even consciousness is because we don't even know what it is we don't we don't know what to call it half the time um
3: yeah and then are no, we not to... no go ahead
1: <laughs> <Not> to... <laughs> I, just, I just said are we in the matrix Uh, Are we in the matrix? I don't know. I don't know. That that seems like there's, there's what, and obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but if, if there, if it was, if we were a simulation, that it wouldn't probably be the first. And to say that we're not the first of something is to say, okay, well then what is like, what's beyond that?
0: So, that's right. There was there's two papers that come to mind when you said that. The one is exactly that that says it's it's a it's a mathematical proof and it's a computational proof as well, I believe. Um, th- that uh if you can prove that this is a simulation that the likelihood that we're the first is like basically zero. They do a, a very detailed catch, which came out a few years ago now that basically it takes a stab at the Fermi paradox being okay, we know that the the ingredients of life are everywhere but we see nothing what gives. That's basically like the Fermi paradox. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's many answers. We could be in a cosmic zoo where they know we're here and they're just like, okay, let's just leave them alone or we'll keep They're like primitive life. You know, maybe we'll just, like, just let's not, um, you know, let's not give away our position. Um, There could be a great filter, which could always be in front of us. Like the great filter could wipe us out at any second and we just haven't hit it yet. Um, You never know if you've passed the great filter essentially. But um, one that he came up with, uh, Alan Sandage, was uh, if you want to maximize your computational ability alone, which could be considered a very fundamental thing. Like if you can compute, that means you can basically reinvent reality and then some if you have a high computational potential. But if you (laughs) want to maximize that, you go to sleep right now as close to a black hole as you can until the latest possible time in the universe it's cooled quite considerably, even from now, um, trillions of years into the future, then you wake up and you start computing. You'll find that your computational factor goes up by 10 to the 50 or something like that, as in you could do 10 to the 50 more computations than if you're doing the stupid thing right now, which is, and I'm putting quotes around stupid, to be awake and burning early. Don't burn so early into the game, you want to you want to play the long game, and he said that's the best way to do it biologically speaking. So it could be some crazy like wh- where are they? So the answer is they're all sleeping, and we're all like we're shouting into the void like where are they? Where are you? And they're all like Shh, we're go to sleep, wake up later. Good babe. We could have also fallen asleep a long time ago and just forgot about it. That 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 could be. <laughs> Oh well, <laughs> for all for all you listeners, this took a very dramatic turn. Uh, Indeed, yeah. No, not to get all heavy, and but, <laughs> <laughs> but this could all be a simulation. Um, Land that on yeah. the table. Yeah. How how long ago do we know like like so? Earth is four point six billion years old. When do we know for sure that life started? Like that's established without doubt at this point. Without a doubt. Okay, that's bad. That's a bad okay,
1: Again, <laughs> again. Oh, it's okay, it's okay. Again, again. again all, my, all my biology you know, compatriots out there, don't at me. Uh, but I want to say it's
3: around two billion years ago
1: that there was uh, findings of very primitive, prokaryote-like organisms. And it took... Billions of years to get from microbes, so from prokaryotes, so prokaryotes being things like bacteria, like mm-hmm. E. coli, um, different other
3: or other different, um, forms of bacteria, uh, to things like amoeba, like, uh,
1: zooplankton, really, really tiny microscopic but complex organisms. And then you reach into your Cambrian period, which starts the Cambrian explosion, which you have all these, you know, lo- relatively large,
3: you know, organisms. So what was relatively large? Maybe like, I guess maybe like a half a meter, three fifths of them, or like three quarters
1: of a meter long organisms and have a whole variety of them too. Um, so that, that, that is an interesting point that, uh, to my knowledge, there, there are some exquisite preservations, I know, especially up in Canada, uh, like the Burgess Shale in the Rockies, but past that, you know, really digging deep into the origins of complex life on earth is, uh,
3: those, that's the
1: place that you want to be, is looking into the Cambrian period and seeing what's going on obviously dinosaurs are much more charismatic organisms but um yeah no if you really want to get to the nitty-gritty you're looking at your your cambrian era or your cambrian period organisms and seeing what, what what's good what's good in those rocks
0: I, I recall reading a long time ago as a kid this uh it was in this book called the Kingfisher's young people's guide to the universe it's an amazing book by the way if you're like you know under 18 years old and you want to get a first like look at all the stuff we're talking about but one of the things they said in that book was an early form of photosynthesis could have been with like algae like clumps of algae in the in the ocean something that's very vegetative um and rich soaking up the environment very rich in, in proteins and, and and molecules to eat and it's got it's got photosynthetic synthetic cells which you blew my mind the other day when you told me that in chlorophyll there's like a photosensitive element like what is it magnesium or something it's like
1: magnesium that? that's at the uh, so we'll, we'll to, to kind of backtrack so so chlorophyll being the pigment responsible for photosynthesis being in chloroplasts which are organelles that are inside plants that give them well chlorophyll gives it the, the green color because light bounces off um the green wavelength that absorbs red and blue mostly and uh, either light passes through or bounces off, and what it bounces off is, is green. um with that particular wavelength, which I can't think of off the top of my head.
0: Uh, green. Hmm. Well, it would be around five fifty nanometers, I believe. Right. 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 Right.
3: Yeah. But having
1: magnesium, yeah, of all the ele- of all the elements being in the middle of this complex, able to take light, and then its own electrons are excited. get shot down uh, or passed or they resonate with with other uh with other chlorophyll molecules to uh, eventually um an electron acceptor and and then it just kick starts the whole idea the whole process of uh photosynthesis from there yeah magnesium being that that one element out of all the carbon and hydrogen and oxygen is that's really carrying on um, or at least initiating, jump-starting that process.
3: Hmm. And to
1: think that that element was blasted out of a dying star, and and coalesces into this. As that's that's mind-blowing.
3: Yeah,
0: good good. good I know idea. I've been saying mind-blowing a lot, but you know, life, life is pretty
3: mind-blowing. <laughs> is all
0: my, life is pretty mind-blowing. Exactly. I mean.
2: When you
1: when you think about it, when you when you put a little bit of pressure on it, it's like oh wow
2: it's like the, the i mean calcium. if we're talking about if we're talking about evolution might as well go back you know before the earth was made all the way back to the star that
3: blew up yeah. exactly i mean we,
2: we oh what was what's the what's the uh quote from
1: Neil other grass we're all star stuff is that is that it or is it like we're just we're we're forged from stars
0: yeah everything yeah, well, that I we mean, see was from stars literally and and that All of that stuff was forged from some event that happened a long time ago that we don't understand. Suddenly there was some expansion and hydrogen, helium, and a few other small mixtures of elements were produced. And from just those primordial ingredients, you have chlorophyll and you have like like the hemoglobin in your blood was at least a lot of those iron molecules, uh, were, um, in the core of a super, of a, of a super giant before it went supernova. Like that, that just, that stuff blows my mind. The calcium that's in your bones, some of that came from stars, that star atmospheres. I mean, when you look at, when you look at the surface of the sun, um, the temperature of the surface of the sun is at the right temperature to essentially cook calcium, uh, to its second, uh, its first excited state. So you see a calcium in the atmosphere of the sun with its um, ionization state bumped up because it's it's being heated. So we know that there's like in red stars, even cooler stars, there's complex organic molecules in the in the atmospheres of stars, um, which is that's also mind blowing,
2: you know. So yeah, it's cool, even. Even here at the at the observatory here, and at, a at, at, uh, we'll focus on, on astronomy, I think everywhere in the world I know in in, in Vera Rubin, which a lot of people are excited for, um, they're studying supernovae a lot more. So, and I, I I know that they're studying it, you know, in part to understand the evolution of of the universe uh, as a whole. But I I just now put that together that uh, I mean when you look at supernovae, that's you know pretty much as far back as you can go without going to the Big Bang uh, from where we came from, so that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, who knew that essentially gravity plus the strong nuclear force gives you life because those two forces are balancing each other in a star and that star is giving you all the ingredients and energy you need to produce life. And it's just because gravity is collapsing down and the strong nuclear force is saying, no, 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 I, I still have fuel. I'm trying to prevent that from happening. Eventually it exhausts and it collapses. But just that interplay of two forces gives you all of this, which uh, that's that's something that uh, it's beyond poetic, I think, at that point, especially because it's about reality itself, you know. Um, Indeed. Yeah. One thing I was going to do was share share my screen on this particular thing. Uh, so it's a study that I think I shared with all of you, right? Did mm-hmm. we all see this? Okay, yes. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, this was 2018. It was the graph that I just wanted to take a look at and like talk about because this is something that it was, it, I only saw this if, like last week and my whole life I was told that, oh yeah, humans are not the dominant species on in the on the globe and it's it's a humbling statement and I totally understand it but I never had numbers. And now I have numbers. (laughs) And like, and tell me, what does this plot tell me, Andrew? Like, this is all of the big kingdoms, right?
3: Yeah, so
1: from what I can see with this particular image is that the entire square uh, is representing the total biomass on the planet Earth. And of that biomass, the majority of it, is plants or what we'd consider plants um i would say then that's i uh, gigatons
0: gigatons of carbon
1: gigatons of carbon 450 compared to two gigatons with all things considered animals <laughs> animals.
3: <laughs> all animals and then of that half of it are arthropods <laughs> that's crazy So we are
1: a fraction of a fraction of the amount of biomass on the
0: planet. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean,
1: even protists have a feed out of four gigatons.
0: You know, what's interesting is look at the footprint we've made on the globe with livestock. This is all produced by humans, and we've produced more livestock per mass than us, like, like on the planet, which is kind of crazy to think about, like. Like, if you were to take a snapshot of this from an external perspective and see this amount of, like, domesticated animal, you'd suspect, oh, uh, there's something organizing these things in this way.
1: Yeah, hmm. it's definitely not the humans.
0: You would think, uh, oh, the arthropods are doing it. Yeah, Yeah, that's kind of crazy to think. You would think the arthropods are doing it from the mass. That's kind of crazy.
1: Or that
2: they're somehow
1: dominant.
2: It's like cause the, the livestock, I mean, at least the animals were already there. We just kind of learned how to work with them and, and manipulate the population for our benefit. And in turn, now there's more of them than there is of us. We're outnumbered.
0: <laughs> so I think a w- w- one one thing to maybe take away from the left plot, at least, is if you were to find um, life on another planet and you were a betting person, I would suspect that something analogous to either plants or bacteria, which, you know, kind of makes sense, would be the first things you would find before you found some, some basically grass eating or other thing eating, you know, like basically, uh, what are these called? Um
3: consumers
0: uh consumers yeah what's from from, a, from an ecological standpoint consumers.
1: but from um the like are you like complex well i mean plants that
3: can be very complex uh, ah, so more more flana. like yes
0: that's what i was thinking of
2: here's a question what how, how do you think this would have been different what would have been different um, back then before humans in the, in the Jurassic periods. Oh, man. How do you think that graph, do you think it'd be pretty much the same, which is, you know, obviously no humans and no livestock? Well.
1: Yeah, uh, you would definitely wouldn't have, you would have a very, very small population of mammals. So I don't even know if they would be like considered on that graph. Uh, I would, I would suspect that arthropods would actually be pretty abundant at that time as well. It's just unfortunately they're so small that having preservations of arthropods is kind of difficult to have uh happen, other than resin or amber, which uh, tying it all back to Jurassic Park and all that good stuff. Uh, full circle. But full circle. Uh, uh yeah, I can imagine at least I guess what was the classification? Wild birds. I mean, do you yeah, me replace that? You just replace that with dinosaurs. Uh, fish, about the same. You also had marine
3: reptiles at that point as well. So maybe maybe mixing it up a bit with what you're considering. But
1: your anelids, your nematodes, your mollusks, your arthropods, the I
3: I would imagine they would be about as, abundant as they are in this particular graph mm-hmm. and then are, you would what have what are
0: Snidarians, Snidarians and animals snyderians
3: are things like sea
1: anemones uh like jellyfish i wow. believe don't at me don't at me biological community
3: please
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm fairly certain i'm fairly certain those are nidarians. Uh, hydras are another another type of nigerian but very very simple, relatively speaking, um, in terms of structure. Um,
3: and I believe almost exclusively aqueous. Okay. And and your annelids? Do you know Do you know what those are? I want to say that are segmented worms. Oh wow! Okay. I want to say. And not just demolished nematodes.
0: I guess for the people who are only listening and not watching, this is the biomass (laughs) distribution on Earth by Bar On, Phillips, and Milo, 2018. And it's from the, okay, so they're working out of the Department of Plant and Environmental Sciences, the Wiseman Institute of Science, as well as the Department of Physics at Caltech. And the division of biology and biological engineering at Caltech as well. So we got Caltech and Israel.
3: Caltech and Israel.
0: That's a very interesting paper. Uh, puts numbers to the whole. Uh, uh, who's the dominant, at least in terms of mass? Who's the dominant life form on the planet?
1: Plants win, of course. Plants win. They They be soaking up all the carbon, and that kind of makes sense because they're taking in carbon and they're fixing it, and from from a uh, from a med- from a metabolic standpoint, fixing would be, uh, or I guess, would it be metabolic at that point? But anyway, it, it's it's essentially making carbon into from a non organic carbon to organic carbon.
0: Hmm. So adding
1: hydrogens essentially.
0: Kind of makes sense. If you had like a a star of a different color, because there's red and orange stars, you can go up to blue stars. Uh, and you had essentially the same photosynthetic process, you would be taking photons of different color, which is different energy. So I guess your plants would have to be, I mean, chlorophyll might be drastically different or it might be a different color plant, right? Uh,
1: Exactly, exactly. And it, it depends on whether or not it would be, I guess it wouldn't be chlorophyll at that point if there wasn't magnesium in it. But I would suspect and... And you have, you find this in a variety of plants at different elevations and you know, at different like levels of like a forest that they'll have a different distribution of the same chlorophyll. So chlorophyll, alpha, beta, and carotenoids. So carotenoids being carotene is one of them, beta carotene. Um, and those usually act as more of a,
3: um, as an antioxidant uh, element. So making sure that UV rays don't
1: punch holes in the genome of you know healthy plants causing them to die. Uh, so I could see,
3: I could see oh go go ahead go ahead. Sorry, no go go ahead. Finish your thought That
1: being that you would have, I would see I would suspect that if there were if that if chlorophyll is something that's consistent with other life or in like other planets and others like star systems that it would either change drastically or that distribution would just be dramatically different, giving a different color to like the leaves, the flowers, if they even have flowers, et cetera, et cetera.
2: And the atmosphere, right? Would you be able to uh, find out if there is plants on the planet through spectral data?
1: Data? I don't know. Would it be a plant if it doesn't take in carbon dioxide and release oxygen? Hmm. That's a good question. Yeah.
0: There is a case study on how to detect that kind of stuff, but um it was more for to, to see the limitations of our detectability. And this study was done over, I think, a decade of it was an imager looking at the earth, the entire disk of the earth. It could it could capture and it's in its in a single picture, it could take the whole image of Earth. That's how far away it was. And um it could take a picture in 12 or 13 different filters, ranging from blue all the way to infrared. And then what it did was it would observe Earth over like years worth of time. And in a single picture, it would take every pixel and average that pixel down to one single pixel. And then they would have a single pixel as a function of time per filter. So you could actually detect the clouds pattern changes just from a single pixel of information you could tell that there was water and other types of molecules like that and the point of that study was if you're taking a look at an exoplanet over over years and you only one of your pixels happens to get the signal you could still make a lot of conclusions based on the habitability just from one pixels worth of information
2: Nuts.
0: yeah Nuts! exactly that's
2: interesting but also but also a lot of the the analysis at least is based off of you know what we know from earth and and i mean as far as we know right now earth is the only right. habitable planet but there could be it could be there could be ha- life on other planets that are habitable that are completely different from earth and and one thing that i read um was that that our no matter how sensitive uh, our technology gets it, it's still A lot of it is limited to, well, it's measuring what we know. And maybe there's some signatures that that we could read off of um, exoplanets and we could really quickly dismiss them from having life, but maybe life just evolved differently there.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's that's where really looking into what elements we have available to us and really seeing is there anything else that can really – Obviously, carbon has that ability to just really make really complex, uh, elaborate, almost like an infinite amount of variation and an infinite amount of length of molecules. Well, you have silicon, which is in the same elemental group, and maybe in theory, it can make some long chain of molecules, but it's not quite as versatile as carbon is. But I would suspect if... If there was anything exotic that you would look at that, uh, you would try to look at silicon, but I mean,
3: who knows? Who knows?
0: You could almost have like living circuits produced from, cause you know how silicon and carbon are good conductors. Like you have carbon nanotubes or uh, graphene essentially, uh, mm-hmm. which is highly conductive and uh, silicon as well. Cause that's why we make transistors out of it. So maybe there's a situation where Silicon develops in an electric field, and suddenly you have replicators. But instead of molecules replicating, you have bundles of particles moving through a silicon substrate. And there's certain molecule, or or not molecule. You can't even use the word. See that you could think of life not even (laughs) composed of molecules. They're just electrons and certain weird configurations that that some survive and some don't. And you have the same natural selection effect in silicon or something. I don't know, I'm just speculating here, but. Eh. When you study this stuff long enough, you get some weird thoughts, uh, that's for sure. <laughs> well, honest,
1: honestly, that, that's part of the beauty of it all. I mean, having the idea that, oh, well, maybe that the amount of black holes that are produced by a universe correlates to some, some sort of fecundity aspect of that universe to create life. And then that, and that thing can therefore induce more black holes. And it's like, that's that's nuts. And that, the yeah. fact that that's picking
3: up traction is amazing.
0: Yeah, that's Lee Smolin's theory of, um, I think it's Darwinian natural selection, but to explain why the universe has certain uh, fundamental constants that seem to be fixed a certain way. And if you like, Change those fundamental constants even just by a slight factor, none of this could even be possible. so his explanation is there is multiple universes, and they all have different parameters, but the ones with the best fitting parameters that produce the most amount of black holes are the fittest, and they survive to produce more so the I guess the assumption there is well one there's more than one universe and two the purpose of universes is to produce black holes, and then the the question is well why. It becomes a circular. It's like, oh, because black holes produce more universes, which produce more black holes. So, yeah, interesting stuff.
2: We're just a side effect. We're just a, an accident that happened while the black holes were creating more of themselves.
0: <laughs> yeah, it could could be. Um, have you heard? You guys have surely heard that theory that if AI predictions are true, and strong AI is developed the way that some people think it will. Um, that we're, you can look at us almost as a biological cocoon for a mm-hmm. non-biological intelligence. Mm. And that even might be the tendency of all intelligent life, is to create technology, and that technology just supersedes them. And that's why we don't hear signals from life, because that stuff goes off into the goes near a black hole, does the most intelligent thing possible. I don't know. like, Yeah.
3: That's <laughs>
0: That's some uh, heavy stuff there. Yeah. For those just listening, Victor, Victor's like mind-blown face is is awesome right now.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I did want to go back to talking about evolution in terms of, of consciousness. We brought it up, I think, for for a little bit, but I think that's that's really interesting too. I mean, when you look at consciousness and and you know compare it to AI, I mean, I guess if you look at AI as the the cap, which I mean, it could just be the beginning, instead of the cap but looking at that, we are very uninvolved. Um, I, I meditate, I meditate a lot, or I try to meditate a lot. And, and, uh, one thing that I've heard that it's, it's just really interesting is that w- we're so uninvolved that, um, the, you know, back in, in prehistoric times, the first, the earliest versions of, of humans, they had to deal with a lot of stuff that we didn't have to deal with. And, you know, they, uh, we have homes now we sleep in beds, but they didn't, they had to deal with um, just uh, wild animals and things around, even just snakes and, and things that could kill them at every corner. And so they're part of the process of evolution and natural selection. And the reason that some of them stayed alive and some of them didn't was this, the characteristic of being aware of those dangers and, and constantly being alert and, um, and cautious of them. And I read that, you know, a lot of the reason that we have, that people have anxiety nowadays and cannot mentally calm themselves is because we, our minds are still unevolved. And, and we, we, we're still kind of in that uh, mindset where we're, we're thinking that in this, uh, I'm phrasing this all wrong probably, but no, we're kidding. still in, in we're still in defense mode, even when we have no reason to be. <laughs> Oh yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. We're
1: almost trying our bodies and our minds are trying to catch up to the lifestyles
2: and the cultures that we've cultivated for ourselves. And so there is no external dangers, but now we're creating our own. And that's one reason why we can't just uh, mentally stay calm and we have to create all these anxieties for ourselves. And imagine how much more we could do if we didn't constantly worry about things that didn't warrant worrying right
0: <laughs> I, I um i've had a lot of conversations with my uh with my mother actually about this she's studied psychology and i really enjoyed these types of conversations with her about like the mechanisms of anxiety and how it works in society now how how we respond to things and it is it's like it's like that same circuit saying danger there's a there's a lion over there and clearly there's no lion but it's in a chronic state and it's applied to everything and we're we're more exhausted now i think in a lot of ways because that circuit is going haywire it's like for a lot of people including myself it's like um it's applied to non-physically threatening things in the moment where your fight or flight response is now on but there's nothing to fight or flight from it's it's but it is still embodied, so there's a lot of physical aspects to it as well. And, yeah, it's almost as if maybe this is a a symptom of this transition out of that state. We're, and we're seeing the effects. I mean, apparently, I, I, I heard that back pain is still a symptom, an effect of us still standing up. Because we're not fully out of that phase, if you think about it, right? Like, yep.
1: No, absolutely. I've I've heard the same thing where you we're still dealing with some of the evolutionary repercussions of one being bipedal the way we are and two having you know, the cranial size that we have. We're still dealing with that as well the rest of the body is still trying to to deal with
2: that and what that actually means. Yeah. 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 I don't think our our, our body is evolving as fast as our technology is evolving <laughs> that's true our civilization is, is advancing a little faster than our bodies can handle and that's where i mean if you look at it from that perspective that's where anxiety comes from and that's where you uh, have the back pains and and it's it's crazy to think about
0: yeah i've heard similar things about literacy and and using screens more de- degrading eyesight because you know one of the good questions you could ask i think about eyesight i have horrible eyesight and i'm like why didn't I should like, I shouldn't be selected for, I, I, that bad eyesight should have been selected out a long time ago, and I think the question, I think, I, I, I could be wrong about this, but um, from my understanding, it did for a while, and then people started to read more, and now bad eyesight is actually a much more predominant phenomenon now than it was even a couple hundred years ago. It's like, it's an effect of, I mean, that's what people have neck pain for looking at their phones all the time, or People have sleep; Uh, they can't get sleep because they look at their phone before they go to bed. They don't get enough REM sleep. You know, all of those things are similar, like anxiety being a symptom. So now we're really—that's this this is interesting stuff where astrobiology takes Mm -hmm. you to some crazy places. (laughs) Sure
3: does, sure
1: does. (laughs) Well, yeah, I'm just and I'm just trying to think of maybe maybe this is just like. like oh maybe we should fix it like knee-jerk reactions how how do you approach that problem and is that a problem in the first place or is this just like you said the the side effect of having these pressures of intelligence um selecting against you so so
3: yeah. that
1: we're not evolving is is the gross understatement we are we are always evolving whether it's from you know the bacteria on on the surfaces in which we eat from. To, global pandemic viruses to, uh, phones and screen time. It it
2: it all it all adds up. Memes. Yeah. <laughs> Memes. No, yeah, we're definitely evolving. I think what I the realization is that we're not as evolved as we think we are sometimes. Indeed. Yes.
0: Yeah. I think of that in, uh coming from the, the physics community, sometimes you hear people say that we're close to a theory of everything or we've almost figured it all out. And it's like, well, not even a hundred, something like a hundred years ago, they were saying the same thing. And, oh, but we just have to fix those two little inconsistencies with the electromagnetic field. Well, one of those <laughs> inconsistencies gave you relativity and the other inconsistency gave you quantum mechanics. And now it's the inconsistencies are even bigger. It's like, Okay. We have working theories. Uh, oh, but there's this dark matter that makes up most of mass that we don't know about. And there's this dark energy that makes up most of everything that we don't know anything about. Um, yeah, we don't know basically anything compared to the scheme of things. Uh, we're just waking up. I really do believe that. Uh, so
2: i love the simplicity of dark energy and dark matter. like it's something that's not understood and so instead of giving it some complicated name it's just like it's kind of dark it's (laughs) it's not as well lit as everything else in science (laughs) dark energy just happens to be
0: the name that got to the popular like table or the, the people's ears uh but there's uh phantom field theories there's uh Dark superfluids, there's I mean you there's all these, these crazy are these things. are
1: all really good metal band names. <laughs> right. like, these, these could really Dark work. super symmetry. Dark <laughs> super symmetry, here we come. Phantom is, fields, it, our our new <laughs> album dropping fields, very yeah. soon,
0: everyone. Negative <laughs> scalar fields. Yeah, that, <laughs> the the um the thing that kind of really just I can't comprehend is that you have a theory that explains a lot of things you see really, really well, but nowhere in the theory does it explain some of the observations you make. Like you look, you're like, Oh, this, okay. We can explain most of this, but there's this large amount of stuff that we don't know where it comes from. And the theory says zero about it. That's what's that. That's kind of freaky to me a little bit. Um,
2: Yeah, I guess that's kind of, I mean, not to overuse the word evolution, but how science evolves, you know, you got some things that you do understand some things that you don't understand. So you kind of fill in the gaps for now, you know, placeholders, dark energy and and, um, dark matter, and then figure out what you do know to the extent that you can, and then hope that somewhere along the lines uh, you'll find out more and it'll be less dark. (laughs) Yeah,
1: no, exactly. And, you know, that, that biology has its fair share of woes like that as far as I know. Um parts of like we were talking about chlorophyll earlier. There's some aspects of photosynthesis that are still debated, still sort of need to be looked at, like, oh well what are these, you know, it, it gets we have this, but then it we have this molecule, but then it, you know, it's this molecule and then, well what are the what are the reactions in between? And so you gotta <laughs> you gotta figure that out. Obviously evolution, like looking at phylogenetics, which is just the relationship of everything based on genomic similarities. Like that, that's completely uh, debatable all the time because you're finding out about the different genes that are in common with different organisms that you wouldn't think would be related to. And and you're having to always go back to the drawing board with these sorts of things. And uh one of the exciting things about sciences also one of the uh the heartbreaking things about the science or at least the backbreaking aspects of the science is that there's a constant constant revision of yeah. what's going on
0: there's a lot of risk of dead end too like you, it's that's the risk you inherent in scientific research is you're you're just picking a direction that you think looks good but you know for all intents and purposes it's probably not going to work you gotta really um it, it's there's a lot of perseverance that's understated in science, I think, especially in biology. I mean biology, there's so many there's so many hard to answer questions in biology. It's like it's mind blowing. Like you just pick one animal and there's so many things about that 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 we don't understand. That's um Yep.
1: Yep. That's one of the that's one of the beauties of it, and that's one of one of the nightmares of it is, is that you when you answer one question, ten more tickets.
2: Yeah. The only way to be okay with it is to know is to understand that you will never understand everything. Exactly. And I think
1: I think that is one of the things that, you know, to to go into the science, and this was one of the things that I kind of stepped away from and now wanting to re engage with is that idea of of not being able to know what exactly is going on. And to say, oh well, uh this this it looks like this particular theory kind of went to a dead end, but I could say now that that is the case, and i'm going to move on from there and it's it's really having that ability to be flexible with uh with the research topics uh with with have- being being okay with having that that of hitting that wall and being like okay this isn 't the end it just means that there's another avenue that i haven 't looked at hmm. and and having, like you said, Rich, that perseverance of being able to keep asking those questions, and to keep testing those ideas and to see if it holds where it's uh, worth the So that's,
0: that's a pretty awesome note to like, I feel like we've wrapped up a lot of topics. Um, how do you guys feel about where we stand right now? I mean, we basically did two hours.
2: I think it was really good. Uh, yeah, we definitely went through a lot.
0: So Indeed. so any any anything else you wanna did, did did we uh cover everything that you would have liked to cover, Andrew, or is there anything else you wanted to Oh
1: that and more. No, I mean Yeah, no. I mean just shout outs to my general education in the past, all the teachers and uh all the professors. And, uh, yeah, no, here's, here's, here's to the future of this podcast and to the sciences in general.
0: Do you have any future plans for yourself that you're working on now? Any projects? Any, anything going on in your life?
1: Uh, grad school. <laughs> 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 just, just being, being nutty enough to go back into the academic fray and really, really honing in on those, those skills, especially mathematical skills and, um, statistical skills that, I feel like I are
3: underdeveloped and past that, not really much else. It's
0: awesome. Well, um, yeah. Uh, Victor, anything you want to say or? Uh, Is there a,
2: just to, you know, for, for reference in the future, is there somewhere that you, like a, a, position a career a a, like a specific place that you would like to end up or are you just right now in taking all of this information and learning as much as you can and researching what you can and seeing where you end up like is there is your path already laid out in your mind and i mean obviously you know things are everything's subject to change all the time but is there do do you have a definite path in your mind where somewhere that you would like to to end up
1: staying within the sciences it's definitely where I want to end up, um, as much as I can, uh, whether that lands me somewhere in, in research specifically, um, at like an institute or at a university is up for debate. Uh, even whether or not I stick with the idea of genomics, maybe I just go straight into paleontology, um, or maybe I do something crazy and like, oh, I'm going to do research in veterinary medicine. So. I mean, or maybe just be an advocate for the sciences in general, which is I love like this podcast, which is something that I've always wanted to do, which was just the general outreach to the public and just talk about how how engaging, how insightful, how wonderful and and how important the sciences are mm. and to really to really promote that. And to not to not underplay it, and to think ah you know it really doesn't matter or you know that yeah so what if that's a small detail but it's like devils uh, it in the details like this whole this whole existence is all it's just a bunch of details interacting with one another so the more we can get a big picture out of it I I believe that you know, the better an existence we can make from this so and then, in short in short I I just uh you know, just need to get my rear in gear and uh get back to the grind. Of the the
0: dinosaurs. Back to the dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> Very well said. Very well said. Thank you. Oh, thank well, you guys. Yeah. Yeah, we'll be you'll be back. They always come back. <laughs> oh jeez. Well just just let me
1: know and uh yeah, well, hopefully hopefully I've entertained y'all for the time that we had and yeah no once again thank you
3: so much for having me on
0: our pleasure and speaking of y'all ladies and gentlemen to those listening to those watching until next time these are receding horizons